What's your name? Ken Korak. What's your job and how long have you held that job? I am one of the radio broadcasters for the Oakland A's and hopefully we'll have a season this year and that will be my 25th with them. What's the name of the book that you wrote a few years ago? Holy Toledo. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, this is a very special treat. Ken Korak spent 10 years in the minor leagues before finally getting his first full-time job with the Oakland A's in 1996. He replaced one legend, Lon Simmons, and worked with another legend, Bill King, and then took over as the A's lead announcer after the death of King. Korak has kept the memory of Bill King alive on the air in his fantastic book and in his tireless stumping that helped King get immortalized in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Along the way, Korak has become a legend himself for a new generation of Oakland Athletics fans. Ken Korak is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Thank you, Ken. It's good to see you and hear you again. Sushi, it's great to be with you, man. All right. So for our audience, I want to let them know that, that Ken Korak's career involves a lot of football, a lot of basketball, Sonoma State, San Jose State, UNLV, a bunch of other places. We're probably going to stick primarily to baseball. It's okay if we stray into other sports, but I feel like we would go on for 10 hours if we talked about Ken's entire career. So we're going to uh, focus mostly on baseball, but I do want to start by asking you, Ken, I think that for a lot of broadcasters, when they're in their early 20s, they just want to work. They don't care what the sport or what the level is. If you could pick your ideal scenario when you were starting out, did you want to be the guy like Bill King who did three sports year-round, or did you want to just, like now, where you just do baseball and can focus on that? Well, first of all, Josh, it's great to be with you. And the answer to that is that I, my, my uh, career – in broadcasting, the start of that was delayed, actually, because after I finished school at UC Santa Barbara, um, I worked two or three jobs, and that, that lasted for about three or four years. So um, I think, unlike a lot of people, uh, I didn't get started in broadcasting, and this was even on a part-time basis until I was 28 years old. So I got kind of a late start. Uh, but to answer your question, my goal was to do all the three sports. I didn't have uh, an emphasis. I never thought that I was going to emphasize one over the other. And so I wanted to get as good as I could get at football, basketball, and baseball. And I had no idea if I'd get a break, but I was hoping that I, if, if I had three different avenues that maybe I'd get a, a break eventually in one of those. What were those other jobs? Was it because you got sidetracked doing something else or what, what was the delay in getting going? I was just a bum, I think, when I finished school. <laughs> 
No, the main reason was, and to be honest with you, I, I thought about broadcasting from the time I was probably six or seven years old. I, I drove people crazy on the playground back in elementary school, broadcasting basketball games out loud while we were playing them. So I had it in my mind from, a time when I, from the time when I was really young that if this was something that eventually I would really like to pursue. But I also felt that once I made that decision, I had to be totally focused on it. And there was going to be no turning back. And when I finished college, to be honest with you, I didn't really have that focus. So I wanted to be dedicated to it. And so I worked at a clothing store in Goleta uh, near the UCSB campus. And I guess that the job that lasted the longest and certainly was the most intense was with a group home, um, a residential, I guess, treatment facility for delinquent kids in Santa Barbara. We had about 24, 26 kids in a half a dozen. Actually, it was, I think, four houses that we had surrogate parents and about six kids in each house. And so I, I wound up being um, in charge of all the, the boys' programs for, uh, it was called Santa Barbara Group Homes. And so that was the job that I had before I left Santa Barbara. And then when I moved to Northern California to Santa Rosa, uh, my first job up there and was kind of a vehicle to get started in broadcasting was I was the first assistant at a golf course in Santa Rosa municipal uh, track. And I worked in the pro shop there. I was recently reading Dale Tafoya's new book, Billy Ball, in which you wrote the foreword and perfect timing because you described in there, and I hope you can do in more detail how in 1979, the Oakland A's are terrible, but that meant that you could have basically an entire section to yourself to practice your craft to the Coliseum. Give us more details about that time. Well, there were days in which they drew 700 fans, as you know. And so once I really decided to go for this, um, I didn't have a tape. I had, the extent of my experience was doing maybe four or five games when I was in college. And that was at San Diego State before I transferred to Santa Barbara. So I, I had nothing, literally, on tape. And so I decided that I had, I mean, how do you go about doing that? So one of the things I did was I went to the Coliseum, and especially during some of the day games, and I'd sit down the left field line, and you'd have whole sections to yourself. And back in the days when we had cassette recorders, that's how I got my baseball audition tape. What kind of microphone did you have? What, kind, what was your setup like? In, in, this, in the empty seats? Well, it was pretty primitive. <laughs> I had a cassette recorder, and I had a little scorebook, and I kept score with that, and I had a handheld microphone. So it was, there was nothing um, real advanced about it. And I did the same thing trying to get a basketball tape. I actually went to the sports arena in L.A. and bought a ticket, sat in the stands, and did a game between USC and Utah. And then I went to Candlestick Park and I sat in the upper deck for a 49er game. And that was a lot more challenging because there were a lot of, even though the, I don't believe the 49ers were that good in the year that I went down there, but it was challenging because there were people all around. And I did, that's how I did my, my football tape. And I'm sure people were looking at me and, and going, what in the world is this guy doing sitting in the stands calling a football game out loud to himself? By any chance, do you remember the opponent or the game or the inning that you used for your demo that ultimately got you going with the Redwood Pioneers? I don't remember that. And in fact, Ashley Sushi, the, the reason I get, one of the main reasons I got that job was because I, I did get a job at a small station 
in Petaluma, California. You're familiar, of course, with Petaluma. Uh, 1,000 watts day, 250 night. And once I decided I'd done all I could as far as making tapes, I wasn't going to get any better until I could get a job if I could get one. I sent my tapes out to um, the various radio stations in Sonoma County. And I got a call back from the program director at KTOB rather quickly, a guy named Bob Nathan, who was a wonderfully talented broadcaster, became eventually one of the news anchors at uh, one of the big stations in Sacramento. And he, he called me quickly and said, I can offer you a job, but we have nothing in sports. We have nothing in news. And the only job we have available is to play records on Saturday morning from 6 until 10. And initially, for about two hours, I turned the job down because I, I, did, I literally did not know how to queue up a record. And this was back in the days of vinyl, of course, where you were in the control room and you had the board in front of you and two turntables to your, your left. And that's how you queued up the records. And then you, you played the you got those things through the board and out on the air. I'm still not exactly sure how it happens. So I initially turned the job down. And as I was driving home, I thought you've got a chance at least to get a foot in the door here. And so he hired me to work on Saturdays. And eventually I started doing some stuff for them. They had two or three guys, including a legendary broadcaster named Ron Walters who recently passed away, was their morning man. Also did all, they did high school football games, high school football, basketball, and baseball. They did stuff year round. It was, in, it was like a throwback station to a time where if you had no experience, you could work there and get an education. And so I became like the third person in the sports crew. And through that, because one of the broadcasters there, who also was a salesperson, a guy named Kevin Rafferty, I worked out a deal with the Redwood Pioneers, kind of in their infancy. I think it was the second year of their existence up in, in Runner Park. Worked out a deal to carry 50 games in 1981, 25 games at home and 25 games on the road. And that's how I got my first gig doing minor league baseball. I was the number two guy to Kevin. 1981, of course, was the year of the strike. What did the team do? What did you do during the major league strike? Because the minor league season was still ongoing. This was really, thanks for asking. It really was an amazing thing because the, and it's not, I don't think it's totally analogous to what's going on today. Of course, nothing is, but major league baseball was not played for seven weeks during the middle of the season. And so we had a, a weekend series, or at least a series over 4th of July schedule. We were an Angels uh, affiliate, and the uh, Redwood Pioneers were scheduled to play the Reno Padres on July 3rd and July 4th. And there was no baseball, of course, in Anaheim or in San Diego. And the two organizations got together with the Padres, with the parent clubs. And so we went on July 3rd and played a night game in Anaheim at Anaheim Stadium. And then the next day, we went to, San, to Jack Murphy, to the Murph in San Diego, and played a game that started at 6.30, literally on July 4th. 37,000 people were there. They gave away free watermelon in the parking lot. They had a big festival radio stations and all the you know, events and activities, like a carnival on the parking lot. They, they sold tickets for a dollar. And the crowd literally was 37,000. That is so awesome. Oh, my goodness. Describe what the press box was like at Rohnert Park Stadium compared to now you're working in a Major League Baseball press box. 
Well, yeah. And by the way, I was like the players because I didn't, I never knew if I'd ever broadcast a game at a major league ballpark. So it was a thrill for all of us. And I think many of us were thinking that this might be our only time working in a major league stadium. So the press box of Rona Park Stadium was not partitioned off. We were like all in there together. So the official score and uh, public address and uh, a writer, maybe a couple of writers from a paper in Petaluma, maybe, or up in Santa Rosa, the Press Democrat, the Petaluma Argus Courier. And we were all in there together. So it really wasn't a radio booth, so to speak. But the thing, one of the things, I was a huge Angels fan as a kid and grew up listening to Angels games religiously. And when Kevin and I went down there to, to do the game on July 3rd, we literally worked from the Angels home radio booth. And so if you can imagine what that was like for someone, I was in my first, really my first full year of, of broadcasting professionally. And now here I was doing a game from the booth that where I had listened to so many games that had been emanated from that very booth. You just said something I want to kind of go back on it because I think this is something that I know I struggled with my first year in the California League and that a lot of other young broadcasters probably do as well. When you're in those cramped environments and the writer from the newspapers here and, and the official scorekeepers here and you know they can hear every word that you say and sometimes you can hear what the other broadcaster can say just a couple of feet down from you, it's really easy to be self-conscious especially when you make the slightest mistake or, or if someone's starting to snicker here or there, what did you do to kind of focus and not get too caught up in your own head in those moments? It's a great question. I think it just involves kind of shedding that self-consciousness and it, it's totally normal to feel that way and realize that you're broadcasting for an audience and also be kind of loose. I mean, we all, I, I kind of got everybody involved up there. Like people always ask me now, um, you know, one of my things is the lights have taken full effect, right? Which I think I probably got from Vince Scully. I mean, I wasn't the first one to say it, but in people in, in the press box there at Ronard Park, as soon as I said the lights, they would all chime in and say have taken full effect. So you just, I think, try to have some fun with it. And the other thing is, <laughs> Even though we didn't really have a radio booth, it was a step up from sitting in the stands at Candlestick Park doing a football game with people wondering, what in the world is this guy doing? So, um, And there were places where you did have a little better setup. Uh, you know, looking around. I remember doing a game in Reno at, at Moana Stadium where you actually had a, a little radio booth there, or at least a partition, although on a 10-cent beer night, I had a beer thrown in my face by a fan walking uh, because the top row of the bleachers was like right below where you were doing the game. So great that you mentioned lights taking full effect because I stole that line from you and all the guys in the press box at Isotopes Park will constantly say things. I don't know if they're serious when they say that they're making bets about what time of the day I'm going to say that. And I was um, uh, a father told me a story that one morning, his son, who was about six or seven, woke up and staggered into the kitchen and said something like, the lights are, have not taken full effect yet or something like that because they were listening to me. And so I just think it's, I just love that expression. And I love that I stole it from you and you stole it from Scully or, or that we all just steal that line and just what a fun line that is. Yeah, sometimes we say things we have no idea how it happened or what the origins were. 
I think that one likely came from Vinny, but we kind of pass it on down, right? Right. So you can pass it down to somebody else. (laughs) Well, let's skip ahead to 1984. You told me that this was the best minor league team that you ever covered. I looked it up. That team was 91 and 48. They were 43 games over 500. You had Devon White, Mark McLemore, Jack Hal. The ace of the pitching staff was Bob Kipper. That was some kind of minor league team you had in Redwood in 84. Managed by Tom Koshman, who's had a long career in, in the minor leagues and also scouting in Florida. And his son uh, played in the big leagues, Casey, of course. Uh, yeah, and in fact, in the second half, they were 53-17. and 17. Wow. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And they lost in the playoffs to the Modesto A's and Jose Canseco at a home run that is still in orbit somewhere. It was, it was, they, they had a winning streak. I don't remember, Sushi, how long it lasted. I think maybe 13 or 14, 15 games. So it was, as you know, if, I don't know what the, the ratio is now, but they used to tell me that if like 5% of the players on a minor league club or 6% on a single A club got to the big leagues, that was like the average. So that would be two, maybe three at most from a 25-man or 23- or 4-man roster in, in the Cal League. And like you said, you just, you know, uh, read off the names of some of the great players on that team. So the greatness of that team, it, the, the example of that was, was what you just said because they exceeded what would normally happen as far as players getting to the big leagues from a single-A roster. I was looking at the teams that were in the California League in 1984. Nowadays, the Cal League isn't too bad, but there's a lot more teams that are clustered in Southern California. But looking at the teams there, you had Lodi, Stockton, and Modesto. All three of those are within an hour of one another. It seems like that was a a very easy, fun road trips with a lot of Northern California teams. Yeah, in fact, Ed Sprague owned the Stockton team, I think, and his wife owned Lodi, and we stayed in the same hotel the whole time. So they try to work it out where you would go down there. You'd be there for a week because Stockton and Lodi really are adjoining cities almost or town. Lodi is more not a real big city. Stockton is, as you know. But, yeah, I, in fact, I drove my car on most of the trips because it was so easy to just kind of wheel your way around. And that it, one of the things about that, about that club that was instructive to me was watching Devon White play every day. He was so, I mean, I, I still think he's the greatest, greatest center field I've ever seen. Um, you get a lot of debate on that, but people who watched him play in the big leagues, especially for those great teams with Toronto might even confirm that because balls would be hit. And I would, you, you know, as you, you don't, you never want to anticipate when you're on the air, but I'd say that's going to sink for a base hit and he'd catch it. He was that great. His anticipation, his athletic ability, and calling those games with White playing center field taught me not to jump the gun. Just have a little bit of a delay because you can't anticipate on a call because he was going to burn you. He was that good. It's funny, again, as you say that, Dexter Fowler was the center fielder for the Modesto Nuts my first year after I left the Oakland Tribune. And I, I feel like I learned a lot of things from watching Dexter Fowler, who could just glide to the ball, never seemed like he had to dive, but would make these catches where, again, it's funny how certain players from your time in the minor leagues teach you things just from their talent because you haven't seen that kind of talent up close before. Yeah, the other thing that that season taught me was how to get through a long season when you're basically working by yourself. I didn't have an analyst. 
it's five months. There are virtually no days off. You'd play 30 or 40 days without a day off. And it was my first full season working in the minor leagues or working that much, for that matter, in, in any job. And so I came to the ballpark, and because they were so great, they would do something every night that kind of got me going, they, that energized me. So I think their play and the way they played uh, really helped me get through that first season. How did you get the job with the Phoenix Firebirds? Like a lot of things, I was really lucky, really fortunate, right place at the right time. And, uh, you know, I did that, that partial season in, in 81 and then didn't do any baseball. I did high school games, but no professional ball in 82 or 83. Did the full season in 84. Didn't do any, literally did no baseball in 85. And then I was kind of almost feeling sorry for myself because I'd gotten a job doing San Jose State football and basketball. But I kind of... I was thinking, you know, you've, you've invested all this time trying to get a foothold in, in baseball and didn't work in 85 because the station lost the rights. There was no really no radio for the team in 85, and they moved down to Palm Springs eventually anyway. So I just thought at least you can say to yourself that you gave it a shot, that you tried to get back into baseball. And so I, I sent tapes out to all the teams in the Coast League. And I got a call real quickly from the team down in Phoenix and the Giants AAA club, as you know, and they were changing their, their name from the Phoenix Giants to the Phoenix Firebirds. And a businessman named Martin Stone had bought the club. And this was in advance of his efforts to try to bring Major League Baseball to Phoenix, whereas this is well before the Diamondbacks. So he wanted to own the club or at least be instrumental in getting Major League Baseball to come there. And they wanted his, his idea was to have a major league style broadcast. In other words, two broadcasters who did all the games and traveled, worked together. He hired a guy named Kent Durdevanis, who was a wonderful broadcaster at that point. had already worked in the big leagues for the Brewers and the Red Sox had done some big time college football and basketball. And they hired me as their number two guy. Uh, I remember flying down to San Diego for the winter meetings. The only time I really have ever gone to the winter meetings either in search of a job or for an interview. The GM was a guy named Jack Singer. Uh, we talked for a half hour or so, and I got the job. The press box at Phoenix Municipal Stadium, especially where the broadcasters were, there's no air conditioning. You're in the elements. Back then, it was all concrete. How would you describe, especially in the summer months, the heat and trying to broadcast games in that heat? It was brutal. It was brutal. I mean, you, you've been down there a lot from your time covering the A's, and it was a sauna. It really was. And th there was no air circulation at all, so it held the, the heat in. And you know how hot it is down there. We literally started a game one time when it was so hot, they grounded the airplanes at Sky Harbor Airport, which was only like a mile and a half away. <laughs> but what we did is we built – Kent and I – because I – we worked two years together, 86 and 87. And before the 87 season, we actually built a wooden platform that sat on top of those old concrete bunkers and got some air conditioning because they had that cantilevered roof at Phoenix Muni. And the air would come in from behind us. So we got out of the bunkers and unless it was brutally windy and that could happen, uh, we wound up working up on that, that kind of makeshift platform as a homage to Red Barber, we called it the uh, catbird seat. 
I recall you telling me the story once during spring training, but I don't remember the details. I think it'd be fun for you to share with the audience about the manager that season, Jimmy Lefevre, and his son, who was running around the ballpark. And now Ryan Lefevre is a major league broadcaster. Yeah, Ryan said he grew up listening to me, but he was, I don't think he listened to too many games. He was just a kid back then, but it was really a trip for me. It was such a baseball education to have Lefevre as our manager because I'd grown up going to Dodger games. And of course, he was the rookie of the year for the Dodgers and uh, was uh, part of the kind of legendary Dodger all-switch hitting infield of Parker, Lefevre, Wills, and Gilliam. And so having, and this is one of the things that I'm sure you've experienced and your list, a lot of your listeners who are in our business have experienced when some of the people that you've watched and almost were like heroes or people you've idolized, they come to life as people that you spend a lot of time with. And that was one of the things about being around Jimmy. The other thing was boundless energy, the most energized person I've ever known in baseball. And again, 86 was just my second full year doing games. And again, hardly any days off, brutally hot in Phoenix. And yet Lefevre had so much energy, was contagious. He wouldn't let you feel tired. And that was one of the great lessons I learned from Lefevre, that he fought through it. And uh, I mean, you talk about contagious energy. He had it. Well, another guy who has contagious energy is Mark Grant. And I was looking at the, the rosters of those teams. And when, whenever I see Mark Grant, a smile comes on my face. I don't think he's ever had a bad day in his life. He was 22 years old, according to baseball reference that year. Do you have any memorable stories about a young Mark Grant? I don't, except that he was always a delight to spend time with back in those days. And that you had a feeling that he might be a guy who, when he was done playing, would have a career doing what we do because he was so engaging. Uh, we also had guys like Matt Williams, who was kind of up and down on the Phoenix and San Francisco shuttle, Terry Mulholland, left-handed pitcher. So those were the guys I think who were the most noteworthy, but uh, Mud was a, a real joy to be around for sure. What about Pacific Coast League travel? I see that Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary were in the league there. So you had three teams in Canada, plus you had a team in Hawaii. What was it like taking a road trip to Honolulu, Hawaii? It was great. Barry Bonds was playing there that year because they were a Pirates affiliate. The, I th the 86, they definitely had a team. I think after 86, that team was no longer in Colorado Springs came in the league. So it was just one year going there. But to save costs on the travel, you went for a week. We literally played eight games. And they had a day off in between, so you could hang out and do the tourist thing in Hawaii. I think there might have been one doubleheader in there. So, yeah, going there for eight days, that was pretty cool. The <laughs> other thing about the travel, and, you know, I don't, I don't know how much to believe, but as you know, they've thrown out the idea of maybe Major League Baseball going to Phoenix and gathering there and playing, having a bunch of teams go in there to play. And it you know, it was brutally hot, but one of the things for us is that we knew we, we, we would get out of there eventually. And that was one of the things about going to some of the cities you mentioned, because those were big league cities. And you would go, generally, you would go on a three-city trip to Portland, Tacoma, and Vancouver, and you'd bus the whole way. And that was phenomenal. I mean, Vancouver is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, let alone the Coast League. And I remember we would run a little cable from the they had a phone booth that was that they called the radio booth. We'd run a cable out. We'd set up a card table on the roof of Nat Bailey Stadium 
which was located in a, in a park called Queen Elizabeth Park. It was the most beautiful setting in the world. You look back behind your back behind you and the mountains, the, the huge mountains that kind of framed um, the city, still the peaks covered in snow. And then you, there was another trip that would take you to Calgary and Edmonton, which was almost equally spectacular because you could make day trips down to, uh, to Banff and Lake Louise if we were playing in Calgary. So uh, traveling the Coast League back then was really neat. Well, from one Pacific Coast League team that is in a very hot city to another, Las Vegas Stars you moved on to starting in 1989. And they just opened a new ballpark um, in the master-planned community of, uh, of Summerlin last season. But I definitely know Cashman Field where there is no window, there's no AC, you're in the elements. Uh, from one really hot press box to the next, which was worse, Phoenix Muni or Cashman Field from a heat standpoint? I think Cashman Field was a whole lot better because in the booth we worked in, if you remember, the, the riders were enclosed. Mm-hmm. And we worked in the booth that was right next to the door that opened into the main press box for all the riders and public address and official score were. And occasionally when the door opened, you'd get a blast of, that uh, air-conditioned air, and you'd had no chance for that in Phoenix. The other thing, and this is how things have changed, and as you know, things have really evolved with the quality of the ballparks in the minor leagues. When I first worked in the Coast League in, in 86, Cashman Field was like the gem of the league. It was really a great ballpark. So I, that, was a, that was definitely a step up. Yeah, the thing about Cashman Field is even though it was really hot, at least from a location, I just loved the view. The, just – you're just for the visitors a little bit to the, to the right. And I just felt like you could just see the strike zone really well and you could see the ballpark really well. So I loved the view from, from Cashman field, even if it was really hot. Remember too, that in the, for the night games, the lights would come on in the outskirts of town out then uh, back then. Now those, those aren't really outskirts. Now they're pretty uh, suburbs that are pretty well populated, but it was really pretty. Right, the sun would set down back to your left over the mountains, and then uh, the lights would come on. So I, I thought Cashman Field was a great place to work. It was cool. Don Logan has been there forever. He knows everybody. It's always a treat when you go to Las Vegas and you get to see Don. What What are some of your memories about either getting hired by Don or, or just working for him for so many years? Well, I remember when I was working with Kent. I was still working in Phoenix, getting set up to see Sinatra. Uh, because Logan did have all those connections with it, with an assist, by the way, from my wife, Denise, who worked in the front office there. And, you know, she did some of the lifting for uh, Mr. Logan. Uh, they work really well together, but she was kind of uh, people that wanted golf. Uh, she set up a lot of that too. in some of the shows because people in the coast league weren't bashful about asking for that kind of stuff, but I actually really got hired by a guy named Bob Bloom who was running the broadcast operation and a legendary broadcaster in the Bay Area and also in Vegas, who was literally the voice of the Raiders before Bill King. His last year during the Raiders was 65 and kind of in semi-retirement, he was still working for the Stars and also doing Lady Rebels basketball on the radio. And he was really instrumental in me getting that job uh, beginning in 89. And Larry Kentop was the owner of the club. He's since passed away, but it was Larry owned the club and hired Don and Larry moved the team from uh, Spokane to Vegas. And the first year playing there was in 83, which was also 
uh, the first year of Cashman Field. You mentioned some of the other people in the Coast League and Vince Catronio, who is your current partner with the A's. I believe that he was at Tucson in those years. Who were some of the other broadcasters in the Coast League back then um, who you still know and, and keep in touch with or where they might be in their lives these days? Well, that's a great question because um, if you look around, especially in, in our Vegas, our little world in Vegas, by the way, uh, Paul Olden preceded me doing the Stars games, and he worked for several teams in the big leagues. And Paul is still the public address announcer at Yankee Stadium. He had the unenviable assignment of replacing the great Bob Shepard in the PA booth there. Colin Cowherd did games there. And, of course, we all know what's happened with him. And, uh, you know, I, I got to know Vince when he was working for the Tucson Club. And Mario Mpemba also worked in Tucson. And one of the great voices, I think. And he was one of the group of, of folks who filled in, did some games for uh, the Red Sox that year after a pretty good run at a run with the Angels and the Tigers doing the Tigers TV. So those are the names that really stick out to me. If you give me a little more time, I think I can think of some more for sure. Yeah, but down in Albuquerque, you had the legendary team of Mike Roberts and Jim Lawwell. Yep. And of course, I got to know both of them really well. And then when I was doing college basketball and football, uh, Mike was so legendary uh, doing the Lobos games. Yeah, the number of broadcasters that have come from Las Vegas and Tucson is is quite impressive. Um, there's a lot more, too. Um, this might be kind of a random story, but in 1989 on the Las Vegas Stars, there was a pitcher named Keith Comstock, and he had a very famous baseball card in which it looks like he's getting hit in the nuts, basically, with the ball. Uh, I've read a couple of articles about the, the story behind this. By any chance, do you remember being around when this was taken or the reaction when the cards came out of this baseball um, right in his groin? I don't. Honestly, I don't remember that. But he's the same guy, I think, who got into the mascot costume the day that he retired from baseball. And nobody knew that it was him. But, no, I don't remember the incident you're talking about. What about some of the other players? I see that Sandy Elmore Jr., Carlos Baerga, Gerald Clark, and Shane Mack, who were huge prospects at the time. Looks like Joey Cora uh, stole a ton of bases uh, on some of those teams. Who are some other players or, or stories that you have of some of those guys? Well, Sandy, think about Sandy was that the Las Vegas Stars had won the Coast League Championship in 1988, and he was the catcher. He was the MVP of the league. I think he might have been the MVP of all minor league baseball. But the Padres had Benito Santiago back then. You know the old thing about we've got a great prospect. We don't want him to sit on the bench. So Sandy might have been one of the top four or five catchers in the game. But he had to come back and repeat AAA because the Padres still had Benito Santiago. But Sandy, and still to this day, is one of the great class acts in baseball. He didn't mope around. He didn't brood. He was he was. He was like the epitome of a professional, even though he might've had kind of almost a license to say, what in the world am I doing down here in AAA? And I'm sure it was really frustrating for him, but he never let it affect him in terms of the way he dealt with people and the way he played. He was just a phenomenal player back then. Uh, Joey Cora, one of the great worth ec work ethics of anyone I've been around, had a chance to be around him quite a bit when I got hired by the White Sox and he was playing second baseman there, second base there. One of the things about Joey, as you know, I think you still have 72 hours to report back to your minor league team when you get sent down. Joey Cora took the first plane back. So that, and that, it really, it, it said a lot about him and his dedication. 
because he would get sent down and you'd show up to the ballpark the next day and he'd already be in the batting cage getting his work in. You mentioned the Chicago White Sox. Let's go to your major league debut. You got hired to do one game a week, um, 92 through 95. How did you go about getting that fill-in assignment with the White Sox? So much of this has been good fortune and serendipity, Josh. The White Sox, after the 91 season, uh, their broadcasters on radio that year, John Rooney and Wayne Hagen. And it was determined that for the 92 season, they wanted to look for an analyst. And Rooney came back as the lead announcer for 92. And John was the main voice of CBS radio back then. And CBS radio at that time was really the equivalent of what we would look at, I guess, from ESPN radio now, because they had the really big events. And John was the main voice of CBS radio. They went out and hired Ed Farmer, who still to this day, well, you know, Eddie passed away last month. It was really a sad thing. And so many people around the game uh, sushi were friendly with Ed. That's the kind of guy he was. But they, had, they hired Ed to do the color and also to be the number two guy doing play-by-play, but he had no play-by-play experience at all back then. And he was scheduled to do, I think, two innings or three innings on the broadcast, and John was the lead guy. But John left every weekend to do the game of the week on uh, CBS. So that was in conjunction with the ESPN game. And so for the Sunday night ESPN game, CBS did uh, the radio broadcast, the national radio broadcast. So in 92, John did the games, and he also did the final four and the regional finals in basketball. So they needed someone to work at the tail end of spring training and also work the Sunday games. They didn't feel that Eddie was quite ready yet to step up and do that much play-by-play. And Mike Busek, who back then, who is now a VP for the Royals, Mike Busek and I had worked together during my time in Phoenix, and he was the director of broadcasting for the White Sox. And he called me. I was, um, had just finished the season um, in the Coast League in Vegas. They'd gone back to San Jose to get ready to do San Jose State football. And he called me and said, we're looking for an announcer to come in and work um, on weekends for us, and we'd like you to interview for the job. So I went to Chicago and interviewed, and I got the job. This next question comes from Zach Bayrudi, most recently of the Stockton Ports. And if we ever play baseball, the Reno Aces, he made his major league debut filling in for you this past season. And he wanted me to ask you, what do you remember about that first major league broadcast, both how you felt before and how you felt after? Well, the first, the first game I actually did was a spring, I did some spring training games that year, but I'm not sure that really counts. But one of the, the things, um, was that coincidentally my first regular regular season major league game was at the Oakland Coliseum. So my wife and I still had a home down in the South Bay in a town called Morgan Hill, even though we weren't living there anymore, we were looking to rent it. And I wound up spending that weekend, um, in my, in our home down there, we weren't living there anymore. And so I drove up to the Coliseum and did the game with Ed Farmer. I was nervous, of course, but one of the great things about working with Ed was that he just made everything so comfortable. He did not, he had spent a, had a long career working in the big leagues, played for several teams. The last team actually was, he had a 
cup of coffee with the A's before he retired, made the all-star team one year for the White Sox, but he never treated me like he was the big leaguer and I was coming from AAA to do the games. So it was an A's White Sox game at the Coliseum on a Sunday afternoon. So especially after getting a late start in the business and all the time in the minor leagues, did you ever have any emotions like this justified all of the time that I put in? Like, did you need to reach the majors in order to justify all of those times in the minor leagues? I guess to a certain degree, yes. It was never a goal of mine, though. When I started in the minors and was working at the small station in Petaluma, my only goal was to do minor league baseball and have a gig doing uh, college football and basketball, which I did back in those days at Sonoma State. They were a Division II team. So maybe it was a de- uh, defense against being disappointed if it never happened. But I never really set out to get a job in the big leagues. And like your initial question, because I was doing all three sports, and I was equally focused on the football and basketball, um, even back then in my minor league days, and even when I was working for the White Sox. But as I got older and you get into the business and do a lot of games, what I really wanted to taste was the feel of the crowd. I really wanted to go somewhere where you walked in and you felt that energy. And we do, you know, you do that in the minor leagues, especially depending on the teams you're working for. But for some of the clubs I work for, you didn't have that experience that often. And the other thing is that you get to a point, at least for me, I got to a point where I felt I needed to be challenged. And to really fulfill whatever potential I had, I wanted, I needed to be tested in a major market or a bigger market and be tested where there was pressure and to feel that pressure. And how do you perform um, under that kind of microscope? And so, and, and the other thing is, I didn't know if that first year, I thought it might be my only year in the big league. So one thing I really tried to do no matter where we were, if we were in Detroit on a Sunday, I would get there at 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning and walk around the ballpark because I was thinking, you know, this might be your only year working in Major League Baseball, and you better enjoy every minute of it. So for four years, you fill in with the White Sox. You continue to do Las Vegas Stars games as well. And now comes the 1995 offseason going into 1996. The internet had just started around then, but certainly there was not jobs boards to find out about openings. How did you find out that the Oakland Athletics had an opening? Well, I was doing UNLV football, and we played a game against San Jose State at Spartan Stadium, and there was a blurb in one of the papers, I think it might have been the Mercury News, that the A's were making a change on their broadcasts. Very ironic because Lon Simmons was one of my idols and may he rest in peace, but still someone who has a profound influence on me even to this day when I go back and listen to old tapes of Lon. But Bill King and Lon Simmons, the most legendary broadcast team, I think, in Bay Area broadcasting history, although you can make a case for Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons in the infancy of the Giants in San Francisco. So it was, a, it was shocking uh, that they were going to make a change there. And so that's how I found out about it. What was the interview like? What was the process like to, to meet with different individuals and ultimately get the job? Well, it was, it was another one of those deals where it wasn't a real complicated process. I applied for the job and I remember having one of my strategies back, you know, back then was, 
if you felt like you, you really had a, sh a shot, like you were in the mix, I had applied for the job and I thought, you know, I had a background in the Bay Area. I felt like my time with the White Sox gave my resume a little more um, credibility, maybe a little more validation. And I just kind of had the sense to revive that I was in the mix. I had two or three people who I'd work with who might have some influence, uh, make a phone call on my behalf. Uh, it was a fairly long process. I don't know who the finalists were to be honest with you. But I remember flying up there one day and I, I talked to Ken Priest, who was the A's director of broadcasting and recently retired uh, through basically my first 22 years of working for the A's. He was the director of broadcasting. Alan Ledford was the vice president overseeing broadcasting and communications. And so those were the two guys I interviewed with. I feel like these are a lot of the questions that I ask of players when they get called up to the major leagues for the first time. And these are my favorite pregame interviews. They, they get called up and then however long they're there, they're back down in the minor leagues and, and you revisit with them about what that moment was like when they get called up. So by any chance, do you remember where you were and who told you that you had gotten the job with the A's? I don't I remember where I was when I got my job with the White Sox because I'd walked into the event center at San Jose State to do a San Jose State basketball game. And there was a message on the desk where I was working as I was setting up to call Mike Busick of the White Sox. And I called him and he said, you, you got the job. I don't remember who told me, but I do remember that the night that I found out about it, my wife and I and my aunt, my late aunt Charlotte had dinner that night at a really cool old steakhouse in Las Vegas. And that was really an emotional thing, you know, for all of us to celebrate getting a full-time job in the big leagues. But I, I don't, I don't remember who told me, but I think after the interview, to be honest with you, Sushi, I felt like I had a pretty good shot that I was going to get the job, even at the point in which I'd interviewed for it. Well, I will never forget opening day of 1996 because it was during spring break and I drove from San Diego state to Las Vegas with a couple of my friends. And we had two options. We could either stay inside a casino and watch the national championship game in men's basketball, or we could go out to Cashman Field and it was really cold and it was really windy and we could watch opening night. And I convinced my friend Ferris to go out to Cashman Field for opening night. And our other friend, Sean, said no chance and go watch the national championship game. And I remember getting a program and thumbing through it and realizing at some point, you know, they had the list of the, of, of the players and the broadcasters. And I went, wait, where's Lon Simmons? There's Bill King. Who's this Ken Corrett guy? I'm so, sure a lot of these listeners were, were asking the same questions. But the Coliseum was being renovated because of the Oakland Raiders. And so your first game as a full-time play-by-play broadcaster, and you're right back at Cashman Field. What were those opening games like? I would put renovation in quotes, <laughs> right? You might be speaking right. <laughs> euphemistically. Um, they were ruining the Oakland Coliseum might be another way of putting it. I think I've written that, those very <laughs> words. <laughs> uh, people kind of thought, well, this is neat that, you know, you've spent all this time in Vegas. You still have a residence there. You can do your first major league game at Cashman Field. No disrespect to Cashman Field and all the great people you mentioned Don Logan, all the great people who are still friends who worked for the Las Vegas Stars and now 51s. It was the last place I wanted to be. 
because I'd spent all that time living in the Bay Area, going to games at the Coliseum, Bill, idolizing Bill King from back in the 60s when late at night I would have a chance to listen to the Warrior games. And now I've, I, as you said, got my first full-time gig in the big leagues, and I was literally working in, from the same seat in the same booth I'd worked in in AAA. Now, everybody was very kind, and I was uncomfortable. There was a lot of media attention I was doing, interviews and stuff, which I really didn't want any focus on me at all. And especially because I was replacing Lon. I mean, it was a pretty daunting assignment back then, but very much like Ed Farmer when I joined the White Sox. Bill King made that uh, transition for me a whole lot more smooth than it, it really could have been. So how do you, let's dive into that a little bit more, the, the daunting task of, of replacing Lon Simmons and also you're working right next to someone who is your idol, my idol, so many other people's idols. Which was easier? Which was harder? How, when did you feel like you got your sea legs that I'm just one of the guys, I'm just one of the broadcasters here for this team? I'm not sure. I think it did take a decent amount of time. But one of the things I think that helped was I had that, that bridge in my career with the Sox so that I didn't go, even though I only did probably 90 games, including spring training for the White Sox over those four years. Because I had been the lead guy for those games, I was doing six innings a game. I felt like I had gotten my feet wet and, it, and had dealt with a certain amount of scrutiny because we were on a huge station, WMAQ in Chicago and a big network. So, I had to really get through a lot of self-consciousness because you asked that earlier in the, in the interview, Josh. When I first got hired by KCBS to do San Jose State games, I was a mess. I was neurotic because I was so overly analytical. And if I had gone straight from then to getting the job with the A's, I would have lasted about three months and I would have gotten fired. It, there was such a long process for me to kind of gain the confidence. And it's such an, it's such an easy thing to say, but it was a hard thing for me to learn that the only person you can sound like is yourself. And the only person you can be on the air is yourself. And there was a time when I, I, you know, I, I, I tied myself up in knots trying to sound like these people that I had idolized growing up with instead of trying to just do the game. And the experience in Chicago, and I think doing all the games I did in, in uh, the college football and basketball, really helped me going into that A's situation because all you can do is do the best you can. You can't control what people are thinking. It's a very subjective business. Even the great ones, Bill used to say, if a third, a third of the people aren't going to like you, a third of the people are going to really like you. But if you can, if you can convince the third in the middle that you're halfway decent, uh, that might be a victory. So that was a process for me. But the other thing is that, that Bill made it so much easier. Uh, his endorsement of me meant the world to me. And I, I do think that there may have been some people, and it was a hard, I'm sure it was a tough transition for A's fans because Lon, was, Lon and Bill were legendary, especially together, that they might have been thinking, you know, if Bill King kind of likes this guy, then maybe he's okay. I mentioned my friend Ferris earlier, and, I asked him what question that he would want to ask you. And he really just gave me a statement more than a question. But what he told me that one of his favorite things is that, especially when it was a lopsided game, that you would draw stories out of Bill, that you would, that you would get, go, get into his mental Rolodex. And, and I'm wondering, 
how much of that was planned and how organic that was to just get Bill talking about his incredible memories and his stories on the air in those lopsided games? Well, some of it would just flow from things that might've happened in the game or something that he would talk about that I would want to delve deeper in because I was curious having grown up listening to him and, and revering him and idolizing him. And because you got to know him very well and, you know, Bill pulled off the feet of doing the Raiders and the Warriors and the A's at the same time, but that just scratched the surface of what Bill King was, who he was as a person, because he was so multidimensional with all the various interests he had. And so I did, I had a goal. There were a lot of times when my goal was to get him going. And if I could really get him going to the point where it started to become funny and a little crazy and off the wall, that would all the better if I could pull that off. One of my favorite stories, really one of the best days of my life, the A's are in Cleveland. I decide to rent a car and I go to, I think I've told you this story before, but I I haven't on my podcast. So I drive to Canton and go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And there's all kinds of interactive displays where you can press buttons and you can watch highlights and you can hear a lot of the calls. And so, of course, I'm just pressing Raiders buttons left and right. And I'm just hearing Bill King's voice, just iconic call after iconic call. And what made King the King was that at the biggest moments, he always nailed it. And so I remember just feeling just like so much excitement about my day. And then I get to the ballpark and I walk out to the dugout to do some pregame interviews and there's Bill and he says, hello. And he knows my name. And I remember just getting chills, just thinking, Oh my goodness, Bill King knows my name. And I'm, and I didn't want to be like a fanboy or whatever, but I think I did tell him, you know, that I heard his voice all day at the hall of fame or or something uh, trying to spit the words out. And um, I don't even know where I'm going with a question like, like this, but, but, I, but I think it just speaks to how Bill was revered by so many people and just, but also his presence and how he would make you feel, he would make you feel calm. He would make you feel like, hey, you know, what's up, Josh? He took the profession, he took what he did very seriously. He didn't take himself that seriously. And he, and he was very welcoming with people like yourself or whomever would come in the booth. Now there was a, there was a time when he would lock in and about 45 minutes before the game started, I learned not even to talk to him because his focus was such, and that's one of the great things about Bill and the subtitle from, from my book was lessons from Bill King that I learned was when he got locked in, you did not want to mess around uh, because so much that was, that was his focus and the passion that he brought to everything that he did. But when you got him going with the stories, you know, we'd be on the road and you would, it's like people would have to take a number to get in line to be able to join us for dinner because everybody wanted to have that experience. And you'd, of course, Bill was a great connoisseur. Uh, he loved nothing more than having a great dinner and a couple of glasses of wine. And once you got into maybe the second glass, then the stories would start to, uh, to flow. And when you could get him into Wilt Chamberlain and Rick Berry and Madden and Stabler and Cliff Branch and all these incredible players that he was around in his career. And, and, you know, then if you wanted to delve into the opera and his painting and all the other stuff and Russian history and his relationship with Tom Macheri and all that, you, you could spend all night and not get enough of it. It was really those, well, I wrote a book about him. So yeah. I, I spent 267 pages, which might you know, speak to uh, how I felt about him. Well, I loved the book. I've read it twice. I've skimmed through it two other times. And 
I remember one of the times that I skimmed through it, I, I basically wrote down all of like what, what we would call the Bill King words, like the, the, the multi-syllable, you know, big vocabulary words. And I remember thinking, I need to try and work these into my own broadcast. You know, I got to try and be more like Bill. And I remember a couple of weeks into the season, just realizing I can't do it. And if I try, it's going to be contrived. It's going to be phony. You can't do what Bill did. I can still pick out a few words that I can, that I can use and it's not going to look too forced, but you know, but that's also what makes Bill so unique is that he could do those words. And I recommend your book all the time to young broadcasters. I think that there's just, you know, like, like you said, the subhead lessons learned because there's so much that you can learn about Bill. And, and I think that all of those interests that he had away from the field helped make him a better broadcaster too. Yeah. At his memorial, which was, I mean, he was, he, this is how highly he was regarded that when he passed away, the memorial service was held literally at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. But, and I was asked to um, offer one of the eulogies. And I said that, I, I, I'm paraphrasing myself, but that his interests added a texture to his broadcast. And, but it could, it could be a little intimidating too, Josh, because I'd say a word, and maybe it was a word that had more than one syllable, and I'm thinking, oh, was that the right word? Because you're working with the master. Because working with Bill was like taking a, a PhD class in the English language or whatever other subject you'd like to throw out there because he knew everything about all that other stuff too. One time, and there are a lot of instances like this, but one time I said that so-and-so's forte was going to his left or whatever it was. Someone's, And during the commercial break, he he took off his headset and said, Ken, I have to tell you something. Uh, forte is okay, but fort is preferable. That's what it was like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. It's almost like being, it's almost like the, the, your, your English teacher is just like, it's just like scolding you. I'm sorry, Mr. King. I won't make that mistake again. Yeah, but he did it in a very constructive way. He was so amazingly supportive and complimentary. He, he would compliment me on things I would do. And I go, I, that wasn't even that great, you know? Like the Jeter flip play. It was, you know, I did the best I could on it, but he was telling everybody about it. And it's like, Bill, I just, it wasn't that great. But, he, you know, he saw us as partners. He didn't see it as he was the lead guy and I was the younger guy that was just going to carry his suitcase around. He, he saw us as partners, and that meant so much to me. So with all of that in mind, when, when Bill passes away and now Vince Catronio uh, joins the A's broadcast, and as we mentioned earlier, you and Vince know each other from the Pacific Coast League from a long time back, and, and the, in the entire Bay Area is mourning Bill. And now you're the number one uh, broadcaster. You're the lead, and, and Vince is number two. What do you remember about just wanting to make sure that Vince – could could have that ability to to blend in as much as possible the way that Bill did for you. That was a really hard transition for Vince. It really was. I give him so much credit because he had to battle through that because not only was he replacing the icon of icons when it came to Bay Area broadcasting, Vince hadn't really spent a whole lot of time in the Bay Area. So that was a transition for him as well, just trying to feel comfortable working in a new market. But the one thing that I knew would happen with Vince, and one of the big reasons he got hired was because nobody works any harder than he does. 
And so, I mean, he's voracious in his appetite for preparation. And so those are, that's one of the things you can control. Like we said earlier, that the business is so subjective, but you can control how hard you work and the time you put in. And over time, I think that became a big factor in Vince. Uh, you know, he's 15 years now uh, with the athletics. So he's had a great run with the A's. And so I think that, um, I think the fact we were friends before uh, he got hired made it, made it easier. But I, I still, you know, I still give him a lot of credit because that was a tough thing to have to step in uh, after Bill had passed away. And I think as Vince had said, maybe before, as he was coming on the air for the first broadcast, A's fans never had a chance really to say goodbye to Bill. They weren't prepared for it because his, his passing came so suddenly. He passed away after having surgery on his hip. And at that point, Bill, one of the reasons he had the surgery was he wanted to come back and work a full season the next year. Retiring was not part of um, any plan that he had. So I think that made it a little bit harder for Vince as well. For you and for Vince and for the A's front office, so many great tributes that, that you did that first year and that you continue to do. What kind of stories can you tell us about how many of these things were unscripted and how many of these things you, you planned in advance in order to honor his memory? Well, I, I came around to the thinking that there's so many things that happened that reminded us of Bill and that fans want to hear those stories. So, you know, he lives with us even to this day and in his influence and also the stories. And Ray Fossey is very much part of our broadcast team, as you know, although he spends most of his time on uh, television. And Ray had worked with Bill for many, many years before I joined the broadcast. But now they have the Holy Toledo sign in center field that lights up when somebody hits a home run. So it's, it's really fun to think back. Uh, one of the things for me, you know, being part of that memorial, uh, it was an unforgettable experience when, you know, you think about all the people that came to that and were part of that. who were like a who's who of Bay Area um, sports history. So that's the mark that Bill made. Yeah, I remember attending that. Uh, I remember your speech. And I remember just thinking Al Davis is here and Franklin Muley is here and all these people from the A's are here. And just, it, again, it was, it, was, it was like walking into the East Bay Sports Hall of Fame with all of the different legends that were there. And I remember your speech for the three things that Bill taught you were the rules and how you broke one of those rules that day, if you don't mind sharing that story. Well, that was the last thing that I said. Yeah. yeah. You talk about a dawning assignment, you know, to try to deliver the eulogy when you're looking at guys like Davis and, uh, you know, Davis delivered the eulogy on behalf of the um, Raiders and then Alvin Adels, right. With the Warriors. I think it was Adels. And Franklin Muley, right? It was Muley yeah. and Littles for the Warriors, and it was Davis for the Raiders. Well, Bill, in the, the very first dinner that we ever had in Phoenix before spring training of 1996, it was Bill, it was Fossey, and myself. And we're having a great time and kind of uh, just shooting the breeze. It wasn't real serious. And then Bill, toward the end of the dinner, got very, very serious and stern. And I thought, oh, my God, now he's going to lay down the law. I thought this was all going to be a real smooth transition. And he, then he went into the three things I couldn't do on the air. And, you know, to him, it was like, you know, nails on a chalkboard when he heard someone say, um, Grand Slam home run. 
right? So you couldn't, you know, I couldn't say that. And one of the other things was, because, you know, Bill did the first two innings and he threw it to me for the third inning. He also threw it to me for the seventh. And you know how almost everybody, and now the play-by-play, here is Ken Korak. And Bill said, never thank me when I throw it to you. So, because he said, if they don't know who we are by then, why do we have to be so formal? And so at the end of my speech, I said, Bill, I'm going to violate one of your rules. Thank you. I said, you know, thank you, partner, you know, whatever I said, but thank you. Third rule was something about you can't say early on. Can't say early on. He thought the on was superfluous. Grand slam home run early on and then uh, don't thank me. But then I got, you know, (laughs) I teased him, though, because he would say later on. (laughs) I said, Bill, if you tell me I can't say early on, how is it okay for you to say later on? (laughs) I have a few other questions uh, from Pacific Coast League broadcasters. By the way, I'm going to embarrass you with this, but you are revered throughout the minor leagues, whether it's someone who is from the Bay Area or whether it's someone who is an A's affiliate or whether it's someone who has never met you. When minor league broadcasters uh, get together for lunch and when they're not complaining about those in the major leagues who suck and they're talking about those who they really, really respect, your name comes up over and over again. Um, So I want to embarrass you by telling you that. Well, I appreciate it. We had a great group. I mean, we had... One of the things, too, when I was working in the Coast League, you had Dan Karcher, who would work, you know, for years in Colorado Springs. I knew him from the Coast League. The great um, Al Coates was up in Edmonton. And a uh, good friend to this day, Mark Stephen, was up in Calgary. And there were a lot, of, a lot of really talented broadcasters who had great careers. And just because they didn't get to the big leagues didn't mean that their careers weren't noteworthy. Tim Haggerty from the El Paso Chihuahuas wants to know about your voice. How much of your voice is natural and how much of it came from voice training? It's who I am. It's what I sound like, you know. I mean, like anyone, you do train your voice and you spend a lot of time trial and error, I think, in ways to um, try to enunciate. Um, How you approach the big calls, I think, is a really important uh, part of the way you train yourself and use your voice. But this is how this is who I am. This is how I sound like. Obviously, when you're doing a game, there you know you're affected a little bit. You're going to try to uh, speak a little more loudly. Um, but I don't. You know, I think that you can tell when someone's voice is unnatural or contrived. You used the word contrived earlier, uh, Susha. I think it's a great word to. Uh, you know, there are people that you just they don't sound natural, and so when you're on the air. And I've said this to a lot of broadcasters, young announcers I've worked with over the years, you have to wear well over time. You don't have to sound like James Earl Jones, but you have to wear well so your voice, I think, has to sound natural. Ryan Ratke of Westwood One and the Reno Aces up until this season wanted and to an ask East you. Bay, right, an East Bay guy, yes, right? another Bay East Bay guy. guy who grew up just like I did, listening to you and Bill and Lawn and Hank and, and, and everyone else. And he wanted to ask you a question about the Coliseum. We know why it gets ridiculed and mocked and it's old and all that stuff. But, you know, that's a place where I grew up going and you did and Ryan did. And what does the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum mean to you? By the way, did Langer chime in with a question? With, uh, <laughs> no, I do not have Russ coming in. I, that's a full paw on mine that I did not get one from Russ. <laughs> does a great job. 
what does the Colosseum mean to me? Well, it's, it, it's always really had a special place having spent so many years in the Bay area and then kind of looking up at the booth and seeing Bill and Lon, it was a fantasy thinking, you know, maybe someday I could work up there and having done the, um, having made the audition tape, uh, you know, into the cassette recorder, but I just love the vibe of the Coliseum. Now, one of the things I really loved it before Mount Davis and one of the most disappointing and strangest things that we all went through was in 96 when they literally were building Mount Davis while games were going on. I remember, even though it was my first year, I just went off one day on the broadcast. And I said, you think that they would have a little more respect for the game to maybe not use their jackhammers while games were going on, right? Because, and with every day, you get, you get less and less. We, you know, the beautiful view of the Oakland Hills out beyond the bleachers at the old Coliseum. And we would lose a little bit of that view with every day that went by. And that was really disconcerting. But and even if you talk to uh, visiting announcers, Sushi, who come to the Coliseum, on some of those days where the crowds aren't as big as we would like them to be, there's always a really cool vibe at the Coliseum. There's an energy there. A's fans are really into it. And I think the Coliseum has been a big factor in the A's success over the years. I would point to the foul territory. I think the foul territory has really helped the A's. I think the marine layer has been a little bit of a factor too. So um, it's hard to separate the Coliseum from the success the A's have had. And I've been so fortunate to have been involved in, you know, so many great teams and and great moments over the years. Yeah. I I feel the same way. And I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's the concerts. I remember, I remember going to see Bruce Springsteen when I was really young and my uncle looked at me and he said, this is going to be the best concert that you ever see in your life. It was the 1984 uh, tour. Um, And I remember the high school baseball championship games, for whatever reason, I'll always remember the name Michael Denard. Michael Denard was this stud hitter at Oakland tech and he hit a home run and a bunch of the kids came running on the field. I remember thinking this is like Hank Aaron breaking the record when, when kids are running on the field to congratulate him in almost, almost the exact same spot as he's getting ready to go around third and come home. And, and I just think about, again, the concerts, the high school championship games, not to mention, you know, all of those A's games and, and, and just, uh, yeah, it's a dump, but it's our dump and, and all the memories that are there. Well, the music aspect is really important. I mean, I went to a lot of those days on the greens too. And, the only photograph that Bob Melvin has in his office is of the who at the Coliseum for a day on the green. Yeah. How much after all of these gut wrenching playoff losses, does, does it eat away at your gut when the game is over and you're heading back home to Las Vegas after another disappointing end to a season? Well, there've been some tough ones. That's for sure. And now that, you know, we're all sheltering in place and MLB network has been showing some of the old games. Uh, like they just showed the 14 wildcard game, which was one of the all time gut wrenchers, so to speak, when the A's had the big lead, the seven, three lead with Lester on the mound in Kansas city. I look at it. Yeah. They, those games were really, they, it was, it's been really tough. And I look at teams like the O one team, which I thought was the best team the A's have had during all this time that, I've been lucky enough to do the games and the A's have had 10 postseasons since I've done the games, 10 separate postseasons. They had a, that club really had a chance to win a world series. And, and so I think it would have added some validation uh, with the job that Billy Bean and David Forrest have done and all the great managers and players that 
they've just have really struggled. You know, they've won one postseason series since I've done the games, and that was the uh, division series in 06, lost in the championship series to the Tigers. But they've also had a lot of happenstance and things that have happened to them that just crazy stuff. I mean, they've been a victim of some of the most bizarre and unusual plays that have happened in the game, too. I mean, I mean the, the uh, 03 division series in Boston, obviously the Jeter flip. So I, I look at it, the other, the other way that I look at it, though, is that I've been really fortunate, too. As tough as those games have been for the players and the fans and the front office, everybody associated with it, I do feel really fortunate that, and it's serendipity, we just happen to be there. We have nothing to do with it. But to have been involved in so many of the great moments in the game in the last two decades. I think that's a perfect way to end it, Ken. Thank you so much. This is awesome. It's been great to uh, see you via Zoom and to uh, talk to you once again, my friend. It's awesome. You too, man. You did a great job on these podcasts. I've listened to a few of them, so uh, keep it going. It's really important. I think people need this kind of distraction and diversion during the times that uh, we're all living in now. So uh, thanks for having me. Once again, that was Ken Korak, and this is Life Around the Seams.